Salwete. This is Vox Romana, your bi-monthly podcast of Roman culture and everything Latin. Salwete omnes amici Romani. Eris Publius Memius Albucius, from his villa in Kiwitas Vidigasium Garia, currently sweet friends. This month, in our classical chronica, I will give you fresh news on my and Roman teeth aches, and on sun and the city. You've well listened, sun and the city, and not sex and the city. For the second one, please go and ask HBO or Miss Parker and her friends. I could have told you other news, such as the discovery of what finders sing to be the gardens of Lucrus in Rome, or the excavation of the temple of Minerva in Castro, not Fidel, but the spot where Aenas landed in Italy sailing from Greece and Troy. I could have told you the opening of King Herod's fabulous tomb south of Jerusalem. Maybe for our next issue, unless Israel in this last case has to give back this area in the very next weeks, which seems, however, highly unlikely. So, have a good listening, my friends. Salute omnes. Oh, my teeth. Oh, well, the American Journal of Medicine this month of May tells us that second century AD dental prosthesis mm. excavating seven years ago from an acropolis in Rome seems providing the first evidence of skilled dentistry during Roman imperial age mm, I hope Roman dentists were faster than current scientists or see waiting seven years well, the dead woman wore a dental prosthesis, Cornelius Celsus, 25 B.C., 50 A.D., first provided a systematic description of dental disease and all their treatment in his De Medicina. In this book, Celsus also explains how to bind unstable teeth by using silk and gold wires. Inspection of the corpse showed that mandibular anterior teeth were bound with a gold wire. Oh, my teeth! Mm. Forming a true dental prosthesis to replace the central incisor lost. The gold wire supports an artificial tooth replacing the right central incisor. The left central incisor is not preserved, but is certainly artificial too. Mm. It seems very likely that. In the case under study, the dental rubbing was performed for hygienic and or palliative reasons. Although Etruscan gold prothesis, uh, 6th or uh, 4th centuries BC, a relatively numerous at the finding presented here provides the first archaeological evidence of dentistry in that time period. Oh, my dear, and documents of diffuse practice mentioned in different light literary sources, uh, forgive me, oh, not necessarily medical. Uh, for example, the 
famous first century satirist Marshall frequently likes to joke in his writings on dental appliances. He tells us, Lucania has white teeth, ties brown. How comes it? One has false teeth. One her own. And you, Gara, lay aside your teeth at night, just as you do your silken dress. Oh, my tears, oh, it's over, oh, friends, go and see the AMG website at amgm.com. Thank you very much, oh, my tears. Professor Giorgio Mairi, M-A-G-L-I, of the Mathematics Department at Milan's, Milan's Italy, Polytechnic University, has written a new book called Secrets of the Ancient Megaithic Towns. Terrific title, but interesting subject. It says that the reorientation of uh, some 38 Roman towns in Italy is linked to astronomy. You know, Amiki, that Roman towns consisted of a rectangle with streets organized in a grid to form quarters, and that two main roads called Cardus and Decumanus crisscrossed the rural town. Among towns with two clear main roads, Magli looked at the orientation of grid's axes in relation to the movement of the rising sun at the eastern horizon over the course of the year, and the Profetore concludes that, quoting, the majority of Roman towns in Italy are aligned sunrise in relation to important sacred festivals or to the cardinal points. End of the quotations. All the studied towns are oriented either within 10 degrees southeast of sunrise or near the winter solstice sunrise. Only two towns in northern Italy, Verona and Vicenza, lie near the summer solstice sunrise line. Mrs. Lorenzi, in her article in the abc.net website, is writing, quoting, They are geographically close and were found in, in the same period, adding, Basically, there are only three towns orientated toward the north, Pesaro, Rimini, and Sinigalia. End of quotation. Contrary to what is pointing out Mrs. Lorenzi, these three last cities are not, I'm quoting, close to the west coast of central Italy, but, but to the east one. And, seeing that, <laughs> what else? As would say actor Georgos Klunea. At this time, let us just remember that the three cities were ancient Gallicans and have surely inherited from the Celtic urbanism rules. Salvete! This is Naius Salvius Astur, returning with my talk about ancient Roman religion. 
the first thing a Roman paterfamilias would do would be to go to the small shrine in his atrium, the Lararium, and he would make sure the fire was still burning from the night before. These daily rites honored his ancestors and the gods and goddesses who were patrons of his family. Wine would be offered in the Lararium at every meal, powering a libation into a bowl. A small part of the meal would also be burnt in the fire as a sacrifice. The Roman sacrifice, which is a Latin word that means to make sacred, was a ritual that allowed the mortals to share a meal with the gods in order to increase their power, that of the gods, that is. A pious Roman might also ask his household gods to protect him when he left his house. Once outside, he'd quickly integrate into different communities to which he might belong, the community of Roman citizens or his professional college, or even a special religious group called Satalitas, and take part in the religious activities of those communities. For the most part, common people took a passive role during those ceremonies, since a professional priest represented the group as a whole, but the role might be considered more active than in many modern Christian masses, for instance. Think that these ceremonies might involve banqueting or attending games and spectacles. The congregation, however, were not expected to pray, that was left to the priest alone. Now that we have discussed the basic traits of the ancient Roman religion, it might be a good idea to concentrate our efforts into understanding what the Roman religion was not. Our common knowledge about the Roman religion as people of the 21st century is often corrupted by a group of clichés and mistakes inherited from the past. We will thus try to dismantle some common misconceptions that have limited our understanding of the Roman religion until quite recently. The study of Roman religion in modern times has been plagued by the tendency, inherent to Western thought, to interpret the religious phenomena from a monotheistic point of view. For many authors, especially in the past, a religion could not be taken seriously if it did not establish a dogmatic body of beliefs and a set of moral rules. As we have already seen, the Roman religion does not have any of these things. But this lack of dogmatism is not a flaw of the Roman religion, it is the consequence of a different conception of the religious experience. This means that the basic concepts behind the Roman religion are so inherently different from those of the modern monotheistic religions that they cannot be compared in the same terms. To label the Roman religion as primitive because it does not express itself in the same way as modern monotheistic religions is as ridiculous as supposing that a culture as refined and sophisticated as the Roman did not have a refined and sophisticated religion. A second fallacy that has plagued the study of Roman religion for centuries is the simplification that considers the Roman religion merely a copy of the Greek religion, modified by some Etruscan and Oriental influences. Greek and Roman religions are thus often studied together under the label of classical, concentrating on the details of Greek mythology and making a simple reference to the names by which the Greek deities were known in Rome, as if they were a single reality with two different denominations. We all have learned, at some point in our lives, a list of equivalences between the Greek and the Roman gods. Jupiter is simply the Roman version of Zeus, Mars can be equated to Ares, Minerva and Athena are the same goddess, and so on. 
Greek influence was very important in the development of the Roman religion. However, there are some differences between the religious concepts of the Greeks and the Romans that give proof of the originality of the Roman religion and that will help us to understand some additional aspects of the Roman religion. In Greece, the links between mythology and religion were obvious. The Greek myths served to explain the origin of Greek religious practices. The Romans, in turn, conceived their gods under a strictly functional aspect. Each Roman god is defined by his function, and not by a group of myths and legends. The Roman religion does not have cosmology or theology. The Romans accepted Greek mythology as a literary expression and not as a religious one. This means, for example, that they did not believe that Jupiter had lived all those adventures with mortal women. The Roman Jupiter was far too serious for that. They believed that they were either marvelous stories with little or no connection with the truth, like many people think even today, or that they referred only to Jupiter's Greek avatar, Zeus, who was inherently different from the Roman Jupiter. However, the Romans did have a mythology of their own. The difference is that they did not think that it was a mythology. They thought that it was history. We will now see an example. I guess that many of you have heard about Romulus and Remus, the divine twins that founded Rome. They are obvious mythological characters, born to a god, Mars himself, linked to the divine th throughout their lives, and one of them joining a divine presence, Romulus Quirinus, after his disappearance. They represent all the characteristics of the myth. In fact, the story presents many similarities with other Indo-European myths. However, the Romans, particularly in the first centuries of Roman history, believed that Romulus and Remus were historical, real characters. And besides the founding twins, there are other historical characters that are also part of Roman mythology. Another difference between the Greek and Roman religions is that, while in Greece any male citizen could perform the sacred ceremonies, the Romans had a professional state priesthood. Priestly positions were well defined and had specific tasks in ancient Rome. Our time is too short to define Roman priesthoods in detail, but a brief enumeration would include pontiffs, flamens, augurs and vestals. We have already discussed that the Roman community acted as a whole in front of the gods. The Roman priest was therefore the representative of the community in front of the gods, to the point where the border between priesthoods and magistracies is actually non-existent. A Roman magistrate, like a consul or a praetor, had religious responsibilities that were as important as their political duties. Many public ceremonies along the Roman calendar were indeed performed by magistrates. Then again, when thinking about this professionalism of public priesthoods, we have to remember that every Roman community had its independent connection with the gods, its own religio, and therefore needed its own representative. This was valid for all Roman communities, legions, professional guilds, colonies, down to the family, that had the pater familias as its high priest, 
with absolute powers to decide upon the proper rights to deal with the gods. Another difference between these two religious traditions was that the Greek religion had some ecstatic and mystical aspects that were frontally rejected by the Roman mind. Two examples of this attitude were the repression of the Bacchanals in 186 before Christ and the prohibition for Roman citizens to belong to the Galli, the self-castrated priests of Magna Mater. Likewise, the Greek religion had a marked magmatic aspect that the Roman religion did not present to the same extent. The Roman augurs consulted the gods to know whether they approved a certain course of action or not, not to know future events in advance. Later on, Greek practices and ideas permeated the Roman mind, bringing the oracular beliefs with them, but originally, the Roman concept of divination was, and to a certain extent, kept being, radically different. We have thus arrived to the end of our brief presentation of the ancient Roman religion. I hope that you have enjoyed it, and that it will encourage you to delve more deeply into this complex and frequently underestimated subject. Do visit the Vox Romana website for further links on Roman religion. Walete in Pacem Deorum. And now for the Latin dialogue. Quintum Vocus Romanae Latinum Colloquium. Qualiter sapit Martinitum, Hortensia? Exquisitum. Gusta. Possumne tego gustar? Gratias. Mmm, suave. Nunc, rogemos nari quidendi? Fiat, ego esurio. Expectate parumper. Pluribus minutis nobises se opus censeo. Plures enim ad nos accesserunt. Verum, equidem hac transibam, et iam esurio. Sapiunt ne ergo bene tibi tapas, Anna? Sane, Hispanae gustationes mihi placent, quid comendas? Panes cumperna, farcimina et patatas frictas, tibi ne bona? Amoenissima videntur, mihi placent omnia ista, quid tibi hortensia? Eh, oblite es, me esse... Vegetarianum. Oh, nulla dificultas, amica. Impetemus mm. mm. oreoas condetas, asparagos, kikeres comario et tortera de patata. Quid, sine lo ligne? Hu, fuidissimum estistud. Ergo, forsan nolis cibum peculiare matritensen, intestina et rostrum bovis. Astur, dite perdant. Ha ha ha, illudo, tamen deliciosissima. How is your martini, Hortensia? Mmm, delicious. Try it. Can I have a sip too? Mmm, smooth. Now, shall we order something to heat? Do, I'm starving. Wait a minute. I think we need more menus. More people have joined us. That's the truth. I've just stopped by and now I'm hungry. So, Anna, do you like tapas? 
Of course. I love Spanish appetizers. What do you recommend? Ham sandwiches, sausages, and fried potatoes. Does that sound good to you? It sounds delicious. I like all those dishes. What about you, Hortensia? Hey, you forgot I'm a vegetarian. Hmm. No problem, my friend. We'll order some spicy olives, asparagus, chickpeas with garlic, and a potato omelette. What? No squid? Ew, that's disgusting. So you might not want the Madrid specialty, beef tripe and snout. Astor, go to the devil. <laughs> Just kissing Hortense, though it's very good. And now the local news from the provinces and the forum. The citizens of Dakia are holding a three-day meeting as we speak. We'll return with more news and perhaps a local correspondent in the next podcast. The European citizens have started two new webzines, Columnae Hercules and Quirinus. Check the website for the links. The Kerealia were held under the supervision of the plebeian ideal Gaius Curius Saturninus. El Arminius Faustus won the cultural contest. And now the sporting news from the Carialia, the chariot races. The races began with 16 quadrigae from all the factios, with the whites, Albata, having six entries. A crowd favorite, Vita Brevis, was scratched early right in the quarterfinals from an accident with Rubra Fortuna. Bad luck. So in the finals, it was Stella Udai for the Greens, Albata with Subigaculum, Rusata with Blasius, and Veneta with Velox Puteolana Soares II. The crowds were packed and the tension was high. The map had dropped and the chariots charged out of the gate. Blasius assumed the lead, but lots of jockeying going on between Stella Udai and Velox. Watch out, Subigaculum! And into the final laps, it's Blasius in the lead. But wait, Stella Udai and Subigaculum have caught up. It's a fight for position. Stella Udai tries to squeeze Blasius against the spina and breaks a wheel. Blasius stalls and Velox Puteolanus picks up speed and snatches victory. It's Velox first, Blasius second, and Subigaculum third. Congratulations to the winner, Lucius Vitellus Triarius. And me? I'm the loser. I owned Stella Udai. And now it's time for the Aeneid with Faustus reading the Latin and Anna Peregrina reading the English. Intere magno miseri murmuri pontum, emissanci emenci sensit Neptunus, et imis stagna refusa vadis, gratter comotus, et auto propiciens, summa placidum caput extulit unda, disiectan enea, Totu videt de aquerum classen, fluctibus opressus toa selunque ruina, nec latueridori fratin unonis, et ira eruncum ad sesefirunque vocat de inci talia fura. Tantanivu generis tenuit fiducia vestri, iancelum terranque meus sine numini venti miseri, et tantas audetis toleri molis, quos ego, Sed motus prestat componeri fluctus, post minus simili pena comissa iuetis, maturati fugam. Regici ec distivestru, non il imperi pelagi servunque tridentin. Sed mihi sorte datum, teneti ili mana sacha vestras euro, domus, ila se actet in aula, eolus, 
et clauso ventorum carceri regnet. Sic ait edictus sitius tumi decora placat, collectasque fugat nubis, solenque reducit, simoto e simum et tritum ad nichus acuto, detrudunt navis escopulo, levati ipsi tridente, et vastas aperiti sirtis, et temperati equor, atque roti suma levibus per labiturundas, aquevelute magni populo com sepe corta est seditio, sevitque animis ignobili vulgus, ianque facis et sacha volan, furor arma ministrat, tum, pietate gravan ac meritis si forte virunquen, com pupexere silent, a rectisque auribus ad distant, ili regit sictius animus, et pectora muset, sic cunctus pelagis sedit fragor, e cora postcan, prospiciens genitorum seloque invectus aperto, flectit equus, curruque volans datiora secundo. Defesi eneade, que proxima litora curso, contendunt peteri, e libie vertunt ad horas, est in secesso longo locus. Insula portum, efficit objectum laterum, quibus omnis ad autum, frangitur inquesinus sidit, sessiunda reductus, inc atque inc vaste rupes geminici minantur, incelum scopuli, quorum subvertisi late, e quora tuta silen. Tum silvis e sena corusis, de super orrentique atrum nemum imnet umbra, fronte sub adversis copulis pendente busantrum, intus equeduces vivoque sedilia saxo, nin farum domus, ic fessas non vincula navis, ula tenente, unco non aligata ancora morso, uc septen eneas collectis navibus omni, ex numero subit, ac magno teluris amoni, regresse optata portiuntur trois erena, et salitabentis artus inditore ponunt, ac primum silici e sitilian exusit acates, susceptice ignis folis, atque arida circum nutrimenta dedit, rapuitem fomite flamam, tum serenque corruptam undi sereacile arma, expediunti fessi regnum, frugesque receptas, et torreri parant flaminis et frangeris saxto. Neptune, meanwhile, greatly troubled, saw that the sea was churned with vast murmur, and the storm was loose, and the still waters welled from their deepest levels. He raised his calm face from the waves, gazing over the deep. He sees Aeneas's fleet scattered all over the ocean, the Trojans crushed by the breakers, and the plummeting sky. And Juno's anger and her stratagems do not escape her brother." He calls the east and west winds to him, and then says, Does confidence in your birth fill you so? Winds, do you dare, without my intent, to mix earth with sky, and cause such trouble now? You, whom I... But it's better to calm the running waves. You'll answer to me later for this misfortune, with a different punishment. Hurry, fly now, and say this to your king. Control of the ocean and the fierce trident were given to me, by lot and not to him. He owns the wild rocks, home to you and yours, east wind. Let Aeolus officiate in his palace, and be king in the closed prison of the winds. 
So he speaks, and swifter than his speech he calms the swollen sea, scatters the gathered cloud, and brings back the sun. Simothoe and Triton, working together, thrust the ships from the sharp reef. Neptune himself raises them with his trident, parts the vast quicksand, tempers the flood, and glides on weightless wheels over the tops of the waves. As often, when rebellion breaks out in a great nation, and the common rabble rage with passion, and soon stones and fiery torches fly, frenzy supplying weapons, if they then see a man of great virtue and weighty service, they are silent and stand there listening attentively. He sways their passions with his words and soothes their hearts. So all the uproar of the ocean died as soon as their father, gazing over the water, carried through the clear sky, wheeled his horses, and gave them their head, flying behind in his chariot. The weary followers of Aeneas made efforts to set a course for the nearest land, and tacked toward the Libyan coast. There is a place there in a deep inlet. An island forms a harbor with the barrier of its bulk, on which every wave from the deep breaks and divides into diminishing ripples. On this side and that, vast cliffs and twin crags loom in the sky, under whose summits the whole sea is calm, far and wide. Then above that is a scene of glittering woods, and a dark grove overhangs the water with leafy shade. Under the headland opposite is a cave curtained with rock, inside it fresh water and seats of natural stone, the home of nymphs. No hawsers moor the weary ships here, no anchor with its hooked flukes fastens them. Aeneas takes shelter here with seven ships gathered from the fleet, and the Trojans, with a passion for dry land, disembarking, take possession of the sands they longed for, and stretch their brine-caked bodies on the shore. At once Achates strikes a spark from his flint, catches the fire in the leaves, places dry fuel round it, and quickly has flames among the kindling. Then, wearied by events, they take out wheat damaged by the sea, and implements of Ceres, and prepare to parch the grain over the flames, and grind it on stone. And now we come to the end of our podcast. Until next time, this is Marco Hortensia Maior from Vox Romana.